This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome back to your weekly podcast, Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe. This week we're back in the 1200s to uncover the story of a man with great lineage and status who is connected today to six English heritage sites, including Tintagel Castle. Not many people will know the name Richard Earl of Cornwall, but as we'll discover, this was just one of his titles. In fact, Richard had a lot of influence, which stretched from the southwest of England to France, Germany and the Holy Land. And as both a son and then brother to former kings, such influence was all part of the territory. Well, joining me to uncover the life and times of Richard Earl of Cornwall is Dr Michael Carter, who's a senior properties historian with English Heritage. Hello, Michael. Nice to have you back on the podcast. It's a real pleasure. Well, before we start, I think it's worth pointing out that last week's episode about the Barons' Wars is pretty good homework for this one. So if anyone missed that one, go back and have a listen and then you can join us a bit later. Uh, Moving on to Richard, Earl of Cornwall specifically, tell us, who was he? Well, he's a 13th century prince. And if you're interested in the Middle Ages, Richard really has it all. And I'll quickly run through some of the main details of his life and significant deeds for some context of what I'll be talking about later. And themes which will keep on coming up are his enormous wealth, his influence, his international travels, his piety his eye for the ladies, and also his cultural interests. So as you said, he's got royal connections. He's the youngest son of King John, but he's also the brother of another king, that's Henry III. And from an early age, he's heaped with lands and titles, including the Earldom of Cornwall, and that's the title he's normally known by. And it's from Cornwall that he derives enormous wealth. He's constantly on the move, diplomatic and military missions, even going on crusade. And he's very much got a finger in all aspects of the pies of English politics of this time, making and breaking alliances. And he's a very good Christian prince. You know, as I said, he goes on a crusade and he also founds monasteries. In fact, his career is played out across the three continents of the medieval world. That's Europe, Asia and Africa. He marries three times, and his unions are very much a reflection of his political interests. He has several children, though few survive into adulthood, and his ambitions are played out at the very highest level. He does indeed become a king himself, but not a king of England. He becomes the king of the Romans or the king of the Germans, making him heir apparent to the throne of Charlemagne. That's the Holy Roman Empire. He's swept up in the chivalric ideals of his day, and we'll be talking about that at some length in relation to Tintagel. He's very much concerned with the next world as much as this one. He's very, very pious. He's a talented diplomat and schemer, and he is immensely glamorous. He knew the importance of display as a way of affirming his power. But he also knows the bitter taste of defeat, thwarted ambition, and also, I think, the pains of grief. All in all, it makes him an immensely interesting character. And we have tangible evidence of all aspects of Richard's life, extraordinary life, and how it played out at six sites that are currently under the care of English heritage. 
Okay, we'll get into those. But um, specifically about Richard and his history, is it a bit of a forgotten history, what with him being a second son of King John, who also hogs the limelight with his bad reputation and his involvement with the barons? Well, yeah, he has a truly terrible reputation, doesn't he? And much of it, I have to be said, is richly deserved. Cruel, capricious, vain, selfish, incompetent and feckless, he's widely regarded by scholars, and it must be said with justification, as the very worst king in English history. And that's really saying something, considering that a few managed to be murdered, deposed and even beheaded. Now, Richard, as you said, was the second son, and he's born at Winchester in 1209, his mother's queen Isabella. And he has an older brother who's a king, born 15 months earlier. Now, Richard was the spare to some extent. Now, the vicissitudes of medieval life meant that many a younger son went on to inherit the throne. But as we'll see in his 63 years on earth, Richard was to achieve a huge amount, and I'd say he outshone his brother Henry III and many of his European contemporaries, and he really, really does deserve to be better known. And why is Richard important to history then? Why should he be better known? Tell us what English heritage sites he has connections well, with. He- He was quite simply one of the richest, most influential and glamorous men of his age. He he was a player on the international stage and at the royal courts of Europe. He played a central role in politics at home. He's always wheeling and dealing. Now, reflecting his importance are the sites that have associations with Richard. English heritage has no fewer than six of them, as I said. Well, he's Earl of Cornwall, and appropriately enough, there are three sites in Cornwall, all castles, that are associated with him. Tintagel, there's Launceston, and there's Restormal. There's another major castle associated with him, which was one of his residences, and that's Berkhamsted Castle in Berkshire. Kenilworth Castle in Warwickshire has associations with Richard, which I think he would probably have wanted to forget. And last, by no means least, there's Hales Abbey in Gloucestershire. Right. And what do these sites say about his life story generally? You touched on Kenilworth being an an area which he'd rather forget. Well, first of all, there are an awful lot of them, aren't there? Six sites. So doesn't that say a lot about Richard's enormous wealth and influence? He had an income of up to £6,000 a year. That was utterly astronomical for the 13th century. Indeed, he was the richest earl in England and one of the wealthiest men in Europe. Now, much of Richard's wealth came from Cornwall, especially its tin mines. His brother had granted him the county in 1225, and he was created its earl two years later. But Richard didn't visit the county very often. I think it's six times in his time as earl. And he didn't enjoy the best of relationships with the county's elites. So first of all, three castles, what are they saying? They're saying, I'm immensely powerful, don't mess with me. And they're also saying that all the power that really matters in the county, that's the stewardship and also the the, the office of sheriff, they're in my hands. Now, there's this massive tower that he builds at Launceston. It's possibly a viewing platform from which to enjoy the landscape. Well, it's quite possible that was never even used by Richard. Restormall is acquired by Richard in the aftermath of the Barons' War, which we'll be talking about, when his hold on the county had been weakened, and it's very much saying, I'm back in control. But most of all, there's Tintagel, which illuminates another aspect of Richard's stories. 
Now, he went to considerable efforts to acquire the site, and it's not because it's going to be a brilliant defensive castle. It's because of its historic and semi-mythical associations with the ancient rulers of Cornwall, and I'm really looking forward to talking about this. Now, Berkhamsted is one of his palaces. It's one of his great seats of power from which he administers his enormous estates. It's in close proximity to um, London and also the, the massive estates he has in the Thames Valley. He undertakes extensive building works there, turn it into nothing short of a palace. Kenilworth, well, as I said, it has much less pleasant associations for Richard. He's imprisoned there after being taken prisoner at the Battle of Lewis in 1264. He really didn't cover himself in glory that day. And he's imprisoned there by Simon de Montfort and the barons until 1266. Hales. Well, it's a real statement of both his genuinely held religious beliefs and piety, but also his status. He founds the abbey in fulfilment of a vow, and from the outset it's intended to be the burial church for his family. But having this role, it's inspired by an abbey founded in France, by the King of France, to have similar purposes. So he's making a statement about his status and his role on the world stage. Okay, so let's get into a bit more detail about the man himself, what, what his personality and his family background were like. Can you tell us a bit more about when Richard was born? Obviously, we know he was the second son to King John, so obviously he's slightly farther back in the pecking order. Uh, how many siblings did he have? Well, he's born on the 5th of January 1209 at Winchester Castle, one of the major royal castles at that time. And as you said, he's the second son and his mother is Queen Isabella. That's the second wife of John. He's named after his uncle, King Richard I. And in terms of siblings, he's obviously got his older brother, Henry, born in October 1207. But he also has three sisters. And all of them make very, very good and politically important marriages. There's Joan. She becomes Queen of Scotland, the spouse of Alexander II. Isabella attains even higher status and she marries the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick II. And Eleanor, although she marries into the English nobility, she becomes Countess of Pembroke. That's a very, very important marriage too. So Richard is very much the poshest of posh boys and he has connections at the very very highest levels mm. and isabella is obviously the daughter of isabella the mother yeah uh, they're okay. actually confusingly both of john's wives are called isabella right okay well back to richard can you tell us about the time that he was born into politically it's not an especially happy one to be perfectly honest as I said earlier, John has been a lousy king and has managed to alienate just about everybody that matters and come off worse in just about all cases. He's lost Normandy, the ancestral continental power base of the kings of England since the time of the conquest. He's had a mega spat with the Pope over the appointment of the Archbishop of Canterbury, leading to an ecclesiastical lockdown called the Interdicts, and it only ends when John climbs down. He's been forced by the barons to sign Magna Carta in 1215. Prince Louis of France has invaded at the invitation of the barons and is indeed proclaimed King of England. And on John's death in 1216, he leaves a nine-year-old heir, called, that's Henry III, who's grip on the throne is, well, shaky, to say the least. 
Do you think all this was pretty obvious to Richard, or do you think he was so caught up in himself and and his well, and his very, life? He's very young at this time, and it's a perilous existence. But I do wonder if so much of Richard's political machinations later are to secure his position and the future of his family's dynasty. To sort of um, correct the the mistakes of his father, in a, in a sense. <laughs> his father didn't exactly have much to live up to, did he? And mm. so, you know, it's I've yet to hear a, a revisionist historical account of the reign of King John. I'm sure it's coming. But no, I, I do wonder if a lot of what Richard is doing is showing that he is just so much more talented than uh, some immediate members of his family. OK. What do we know about Richard's early life? Is it documented? Well, he's brought up in the household of his mother, Queen Isabella at Marlborough Castle. But from an early age, he's been introduced to what life as a medieval prince is like. And he joins his father on a progress through the north in 1214 and then goes on a military exhibition to France. Now, But he's dispatched to Corfe Castle in Dorset, held by a, a loyal noble, when rebellion breaks out in 1215. And he stays there until 1220, when he goes to London for his brother's coronation. Marlborough in Wiltshire to... Dorset, Corfe Castle. To Dorset and then to London. Okay. And at what age did Richard start acquiring land and status? Compared to 21st century standards, his public life starts at a remarkably early age. He's just 12 when he receives his first major grant of lands. That's the Honour of Eye in Suffolk. Right. He goes on a military exhibition to France in 1225, and he's just 16. And even though he was essentially just a figurehead, it's very much an introduction to him for what medieval kingship and medieval power is all about. And you have to be prepared to go on the battlefield to defend this and augment it. He's knighted in the same year, and he becomes a count, Count of Poitou, and he's granted the county of Cornwall, becoming its earl in 1227. And this is, of course, when I'm presuming he acquires Tintagel Castle, that key castle it, in the English Heritage Collection. It comes slightly later. It's in 1233. Okay. And I think it's one of the most intriguing English Heritage sites to be associated with him. Well, it's in Cornwall, it's on the north coast, and even by Richard's time, it had a history of occupation going back several centuries. But by the 13th century, the site had little military or strategic value. Nevertheless, in 1233, Richard goes to considerable effort to acquire the site. And actually, in financial terms, he comes off worse in the transaction. But Richard invests very, very heavily building a castle there. But it's not a castle to repel foes. There are substantial remains of what looks like an impressive defensive wall topped by battlements, but it's too thin to be of any real military value, and it's really just for show. Now, all the trouble, expense and effort Richard expends at Tintagel was surely because of the site's historic and mythical connections with the ancient rulers of Cornwall. And he's now saying, I am their heir. Now, a 12th century history of the kings of Britain written by Geoffrey of Monmouth, it's largely fantasy, says that King Arthur was conceived at Tintagel. 
and it also has associations with the story of Tristram and Isolde, a romance with Arthurian associations, the earliest versions of which date back to the 12th century, and which by Richard's times were being widely read in chivalric courtly circles. And there are three structures on the site built by Richard on the headland at Tintagel, the walled garden or the so-called walled garden, the chapel and the tunnel or grotto, and these seem to directly reference this romance of this Cornish knight and his lover. Now, medieval kings and aristocrats absolutely loved this sort of thing. It tied in with the romance of chivalric culture, then very much in its heyday. And Arthur and the Grail legend were immensely popular at this time, and, and royalty were keen to attach themselves and to this legend. Tintagel, I think, was a massive exercise in play-acting by Richard and also of his conspicuous consumption. It was a place of royal theatre, of display and hospitality. And when I say theatre, I mean it's, you know, showing off. It's interesting in terms of the hospitality. Richard grants his nephew, the Welsh prince Daffid ap Llewellyn, also an Arthurian enthusiast, asylum at the castle in 1245. It is a bit rubbish as a fortification, but it's an unmistakable statement of power and possession. Richard's saying, I'm the inheritor of the ancient realm of Cornwall. And you know what? I've got enough money and prestige to spend massive amounts of dosh on this place to make the point and associate myself with these great legends. Please don't even think of challenging my authority. Let's talk about his um, relationship with his older brother, uh, Henry, who had become Henry III. What was that like? Well, it's mixed, to be honest, and Richard was definitely the brighter and more talented of the two, to be perfectly honest. They have serious fallings out on a number of occasions, and Richard cultivates his relationship with the barons and actually comes close to open rebellion on more than one occasion. But he always pulls back and ultimately remains loyal. I do wonder if this relationship of Richard with the barons is actually quite useful for his brother. And it must be said that Richard is a useful diplomat. He goes on missions on his brother's behalf to Europe. And actually on uh, several occasions as well, Richard uses his enormous wealth to bail out his financially feckless king. So he is a useful servant and a loyal servant? Just about, yeah. Mm. Okay. He was married three times. In his first marriage, his new wife, Isabel, brought her six children with her, which is quite a lot to take on. Was it a happy marriage? Yeah, his first uh, marriage is Isabel Marshall, and it's a, it's, it, it, it could well have been a love match, actually. He, he marries her against the wishes uh, of, of, of Henry, who apparently was thinking of a more prestigious bride. But it's actually a very, very good politically marriage because she comes from the very highest levels of the English noble classes. And she was widowed, uh, is that right? She is indeed. She'd been married to Gilbert de Clare, Earl of Gloucester. He dies in 1230, and he leaves her a widow. Now, widows can be very, very good people to marry indeed because they can often be enormously wealthy. It's a marriage that has political advantages. It's cementing Richard's affiliation with leading baronial families. Now you asked if it was happy. Well, as I said, there could be some evidence of it being a love match, that they actually did have a genuine bond. But well, 
Initially, she doesn't fulfil what was thought to be the primary duty of a high-born medieval bride, and that was to provide Richwood with a living male heir. And an annulment was on the horizon, and uh, however, in 1235, she does give birth to a healthy son. He's called Henry, and he'll play an important part in the story later on. And how does their marriage end then? You touch on a possible annulment happening. Well... She actually dies in five years after the birth of the son Henry, that's in 1240, and she dies as a consequence of childbirth. Uh, she dies at Berkhamstead Castle, which is the residence of all of Richard's wives. Now, Isabel wanted to be buried at Tewkesbury Abbey next to her first husband, but Richard has other ideas, and he insists that she is laid to rest at Bewley Abbey, Hampshire, a Cistercian monastery which had been founded by his father. Why is that such a problematic thing? I guess it's going against her wishes, isn't well, it? Well, it's just, you know, it's Richard has made the decision. Her heart's buried at Tewkesbury. You know, it's very it's very common at this time for um, aristocrats to have their bodies fragmented at burial and buried in numerous locations. It's affirming, therefore, their association with these religious houses. but all, And also, crucially to their minds, increasing the opportunity of prayer for the salvation of their souls. But what's he saying is burying it Bewley, it's affirming this is a family monastery, and Bewley becomes very important in our story as well. Mm. Did he have one child with her then? And, and yes. this, this second attempt was uh, the cause of her death. Oh, he has several children, but uh, you know, the, 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 you know, it's the Middle Ages, and well, if you think until well into the 20th century, there was incredible uh, early childhood mortality and Henry's the only one who survives the only uh, um, one who survives into adult life well right okay I gather that the next chapter of his life then takes him away from England to the Crusades so what was his involvement in the Holy Land well you know the Crusades are a, a feature of the Middle Ages from the 11th century onwards and they've been described as armed pilgrimages it's warriors mainly the knighted classes, but led by the knightly classes, the aristocratic classes, but with people from across society going to the Holy Land to fight, to reconquer the holy places associated with Christ's life, death and resurrection from the Muslims. Under the, They'd been in Muslim control since the 7th century. And there were a number of crusades and any good pious prince at this time is either going to go on crusade or fund a crusade. And Richard's no exception. He pledges to go on crusade. He takes the cross, to use the medieval term, in 1236. And he fells his forests to pay for this. And he also levies a forced loan of £2,000 on England's Jewish community to pay for it as well. There are political tensions at home and abroad, and this delays his departure. And he finally embarks on the crusade after the death of Isabella in 1240. En route, he's entertained in Paris by King Louis IX, who himself was, undertake, was to undertake a crusade. But not everybody is convinced that uh, Richard's crusading ideals are a good idea. And that actually includes the Pope, who wants to deflect his, his pious armed pilgrimage elsewhere. Well, nevertheless, he arrives in the port of Acre, that's the main Christian possession on the coast of the Holy Land, in October 1240. 
and he enjoys some success. He secures the release from the Saracens of some Frankish prisoners. He's some Christian knights who'd fallen in battle are buried in holy consecrated ground as a consequence of Richard's intervention. He rebuilds a fortress that had been levelled a generation earlier. His adventures were actually a modest success, but as is so often with Richard, it's through his diplomatic skills rather than his prowess on the battlefield. And how long was he away for in the Crusades? Well, he makes quite a leisurely journey back from them that involves being entertained in Italy by um, dancing girls balancing on rolling spheres. And he makes an excursion to go and see an elephant and also to see his sister, the Empress Isabella. And he finally arrives back in England in January 1242 and is greeted by the king and queen at Dover. We know there's Dover Castle there, another great English heritage site. And a splendid triumph is held in his honour in London. Am I right in saying it's a two-year trip abroad then? More or less, yeah. Mm. And he comes back in 1242. A second marriage is then on the cards. How does that happen? Well, he's soon back on his travels. He's off to France to protect his brother's interests. It's an exhibition that ends in military failure and another falling out with his brother. He comes close to shipwreck on the way home and as a consequence of this, he makes a vow for his safety and this has the genesis in the foundation of Hales Abbey four years later. And in June 1242, he's betrothed by proxy to Sancha of Provence, the sister of a Queen Eleanor, that's Henry's wife. Now it's a really adventitious marriage and adding to her attraction must have been what one contemporary described as her incomparable beauty. Richard acquires significant landed interests in Provence and Savoy, augmenting what it must be said is an ex- already an extensive property portfolio, to use the 21st century term. They're married amidst great ceremony in Westminster Abbey in 1243, and Sancha receives a very generous settlement, including Berkhamstead Castle, which becomes her residence. Richard is gathering political influence and um, property portfolio, as you say, land. It sounds as though that his political manoeuvrability is getting stronger as well. You know, he's already a formidable presence. And what is he has been, he's now allied by marriage to one of the great families, one of the most important families of continental Europe. I mean, Rich as well, status, fame and glamour were formidable. And, you know, I, I, I've deliberately said glamour on a number of occasions, and that really, really mattered in the Middle Ages. Your image mattered. Mm. He undertakes further diplomatic missions to France in 1247, visiting King Louis IX just before he embarks on an utterly disastrous crusade that leads to his capture. And he also pays homage at the shrine of St Edmund at the Cistercian Abbey of Pontigny. And he was indeed, he has a great devotion to Edmund and he names his son and heir, a son born with Sancha, after the saint. And in 1253, Richard actually becomes joint regent of England when Henry III goes off to Gascony. Right, so he's running things at home. Yeah, he's. Gosh, I wonder how English history would have played out if if he'd be, he turned out to be King Richard II rather than his brother being king. Absolutely, because if his brother was killed abroad or something like that, then there he would be in power at home. Mm. 
That's very interesting. Is this uh, this period more or less the peak of his powers, would you say? Well, it's interesting. Whilst in Gascony, Henry accepts the Pope's offer to become King of Sicily. Now, it's a claim he has absolutely no hope of fulfilling, and it's a title which had been rejected by Richard on no fewer than three separate occasions. And this time, Richard's had enough, and he cuts off the money supply to his brother. But Richard has his eye on a much more ambitious venture, and that's to become Holy Roman Emperor. I don't think he becomes that, if I'm if I'm right in saying, but he does acquire the title King of the Romans. But what does that actually mean? Right, OK. Well, you know, the, to be a Holy Roman Emperor, it is the ultimate, ultimate royal dignity in medieval Europe. You are the heir to Charlemagne, this great figure who un- who's seen as uniting a warring Europe. And the, the Holy Roman Emperor has or the empire the bounds of the empire extend across most of what's modern day germany into bits of france down into italy but it's very much an honorific title you've got to have the power and the men and the land base to be able to assert your authority as emperor but nevertheless it carries enormous i mean incalculable prestige Mm. Now, the heir to the Holy Roman Emperor is the King of the Romans. And it's an ex- in its statement to Richard's extraordinary diplomatic skills and also an indication of his wealth and web of contacts at the very highest level that he could achieve this. In January 1256, the preferred papal candidate to be Holy Roman Emperor, William of Holland, dies Now, the emperor and his heir, that's the king of the Romans, were elected by what are called the seven imperial electors. And these are various German uh, nobles, princes and archbishops. Richard spends the best part of £20,000. And I can't even begin to put that into a modern amount of money. It is just astronomical to secure the support of three of the electors. And he's formally offered the crown of King of the Romans in December 1256. Now, it doesn't matter one bit that a clear majority of the electors, that's four of them, back an alternative claim to be King of the Romans. That's a claim of Alfonso of Castile, but he's just too far away and lacks the financial and military means of pressing his claim. Richard's there. He's got the cash. He's he's, he's in close proximity. And he travels to Arken, Arken Cathedral, in May 1257, when he is formally crowned King of the Romans. And in the treasury at the cathedral, which you can still see to this day, are his imperial scepter and also a chest bearing enamels with the shields of, of Richard and also his wife, Sancha. Mm. When Richard he... augments his, his power base there by rebuilding Arkham Town Hall. And he makes four separate trips to Germany to try and pursue his claim to the imperial throne to become emperor, to become the heir of Charlemagne. But for once, his diplomatic skills fail him and he never quite secures this ultimate dignity. But nevertheless, he comes closer than any Englishman to becoming Holy Roman Emperor. That's one heck of an ambition, isn't it, really? He really uh, played a blinder. Just, he just came up short. Yeah, well, actually, and there's another thing here as well. Emperors are above kings. 
and wouldn't that just that he, his brother was just again just a king you know but <laughs> you know if he'd been his, emperor, his own brother he would have and also he would have outranked every other monarch in europe the only person who could rival him for prestige would have been the pope so he could have been apart from the pope the most powerful man in europe well in terms of prestige, yes. Right. You know, one of the reasons he doesn't ultimately become emperor is he just doesn't have the European power base mm. to assert his claim. Yeah, he's, he's got the channel in the way, which I think yeah. is the main issue. The, the, this title, King of the Romans, obviously it's one below the Holy Roman Emperor. But this idea of Roman, aren't we referring to modern day Germany at this point? Yeah, essentially we are. But since the time of Charlemagne, you know, Charlemagne's crowned Holy Roman Emperor by the Pope on Christmas Day 800. It's very much seen themselves, nevertheless, as the true inheritors of the late Roman Emperor, the Christian Roman Empire. And that's what a lot of the, the prestige comes from. Okay. And how much um, geographical influence and power would Richard have had under this title, King of the Romans? In terms of power, he doesn't really have that much because he doesn't have the power base in Europe, the land in Europe to assert it. But it's prestige. And if Richard had become emperor, it would, I think, just have been a, a lovely title, a dignity, but would have ended up being a bit of a bauble. How could he have asserted his claim? You know, the people who become emperor have massive, massive land holdings in Europe and soldiers to go with it, mm. you know. And in the Middle Ages, so much power is related to your ability to assert it. Richard's got the money, but he doesn't in Europe have the men or the land. So he was a very powerful man, also a very religious one, as evidenced by his trips to the Holy Land in the Crusades. What can you tell us about his religious patronage in England? This is an age of faith, and we should never forgive this. And it is, for most people at this time, a genuinely held faith as well. And Richard was had conventional piety for his time. He makes pilgrimages to the shrines of saints, including the relics of St Thomas Becker at Canterbury Cathedral. And he also founds monasteries, and the grandest of these is Hales Abbey in Gloucestershire. And that's a fulfilment. It's the, 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 the Abbey's founded in fulfilment of his shipboard vow in 1242. Now, it's an offshoot or daughter house of Bewley Abbey in Hampshire, and that's his father's foundation, and it's a, a house of Cistercian monks. And how grand was that foundation? Was there a bit of uh, a lot of, um, shall we say, press coverage at the time? And well, that's <laughs> a good way of looking at it, actually, yeah. Now, Richard was enormously generous to Hales Abbey. He spends over £6,000 on its construction and also gives it extensive estates. And it's dedicated in 1251. The church is dedicated in 1251. Richard and his wife Sancha are present. So too the king and queen, innumerable nobles, 300 knights, 13 bishops, each of whom consecrates an, an, an individual altar. And there's a great feast held in celebration. It really is a grand event. How key was the foundation of Hales Abbey and its subsequent development to his family? Well, Hales, interesting, it's a very interesting monastery. The Cistercians were called in the Middle Ages the surest roads to heaven. 
and nobles across Europe around this time were turning to them to secure the salvation of their souls. And, and boy, did their deeds, their violent deeds and their, you know, sexual behaviour. You know, Richard had had a reputation for being quite a ladies' man and, you know, had numerous children out of wedlock with various mistresses. Boy, did they need prayers for the salvations of their souls. Now, right. du- during Richard's lifetime and that of his family, the monks would have prayed for his safety and for his health. And after death, they would have prayed for the everlasting salvation of their souls. And death was very much on Richard's mind when he founded Hales, which was from the outset intended to be his family's mausoleum, where they would lay, where their bones would lay in perpetuity, the monks praying for their souls. And it was also a decision which is there for a little bit of status as well. It's influenced by the foundation of a monastery in France near Paris by Louis IX, which was to be the resting place for junior members of the French royal house. Mm. I mean, Hales is a wonderful site, you know, really, really is worth visiting. And, you know, just the ruins that survive, you can see this is a fairly substantial monastery. And if you go into the museum, there are some just wonderful sculptural fragments give an idea of just how skilled the craftsmen were who worked there and the richness of its adornment and the patronage of Richard and later his son Edmund. So in summary it's kind of like um, a religious insurance policy with the monks praying for their souls after they've eventually died and also in life a massive status symbol again and also uh, an ability to say that yes I'm a very religious man but I'm also a very powerful man. Yep that's absolutely true. And Hales of course um, is perhaps most famous for its supposed relic of the holy blood but how did this object come to get there? Yeah, well, in 1270, Edmund, that's uh, the son of Richard and Sancha, presents the abbey with one of the very holiest of all possible relics. It's, as you said, the holy blood. And this was believed to be drops of the very blood shed by Christ as he suffered on the cross. It arrives at the Abbey on the 14th of September, 1270. So it's the 750th anniversary this year. And to the medieval mind, it has the best of all possible provenances. And it was said to come from the coronation regalia of Charlemagne himself. And it had a story, or to use a medieval term, a legend, that took it right back to the time of the crucifixion. Now, the east end of the church at Hales was rebuilt on a magnificent scale to accommodate this holiest of relics. And it was placed in a shrine behind the high altar. And you can still see the platform of the shrine when you visit the site. Now, this extension was completed in 1277. And the architecture and plan, it has a, what's called an ambulatory, a semicircular walkway surrounded by radiating chapels. And this was influenced by Westminster Abbey, which Henry III had rebuilt. Now, it's actually to said, you know, it, you know Henry Bill rebuilds Westminster because of the, concerning the shrine of Edward the Confessor. But I mean, Henry acquires a relic of the Holy Blood. But no one believes it's authentic or its authenticity is doubted. It's almost a case of, yeah, mate, this saw you coming. That's not the case of the holy blood of Hales. Hales, because of the blood, becomes one of the great pilgrim destinations of medieval England. It's even mentioned in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. By God's precious heart and by his nails and by the blood of Christ that is at Hales. 
And numerous relics are attributed to the uh, to, to the Hales relic. It's said to be second only in importance to Thomas Beckett's relics at Canterbury. And the Hales relics are even purported to be able to raise the dead. And this relic of the holy blood, how does it sort of manifest itself? Is it blood in a vial or how does it work? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. But the very, very interesting detail of its legend which that it will only make itself manifest to people who are in a state of grace. That's to say their sins have been forgiven. And I think that people were making the pilgrimage to Hales after they'd confessed a heinous sin to their priest to find out if they really had been forgiven. Now, there's a seal that survives at Hales. It's the seal of the Abbey's brotherhood or confraternity. And it shows an altar boy or acolyte or perhaps a priest holding the very relic itself, which is contained in a circular glass vial. We've talked about this holy blood and its legacy there at the Abbey, but is there any record of Richard if you walk around the Abbey today? Well, there's both documentary and material, tangible evidence of Richard. His role in the history of the Abbey is mentioned in detail in the Abbey's medieval chronicles, very, very keen to stress Richard's associations. And they records that Richard and several members of his family were buried at Hales. These included an infant son who died when the Abbey was being built, Sancha, who dies in 1260, Henry of Almain, that's Richard's son with Isabel, who was brutally murdered in Viterbo in Italy in 1271, which we'll get to. Richard himself in 1272 and Edmund in 1300. Now, sadly, all these tombs were destroyed when the abbeys suppressed at the uh, during the dissolution of the monasteries. But the evidence, the tangible evidence of uh, association with the abbey comes in the form of floor tiles decorated with the coat of arms of Richard as Earl of Cornwall and the eagle the imperial eagle of King of the Romans that were excavated at the Abbey and can be seen in the museum. Many of these were found to the north of the High Altar. That's a traditional burial place for founders and it's part of a magnificent paving scheme that also included tiles with the arms of Sancha, the, the arms of Provence. And it's likely that these were in close proximity to their tomb. And you can see the arms painted in the nearby parish church as well, which is well worth a visit. Now, the Abbey's Chronicle also describes how the shield carried by Richard and his funerary effigy was emblazoned with both the lion of the earls of Cornwall and also the imperial eagle of the king of the Romans. Uh, sadly, it just doesn't survive. Mm. But he is a man who has clearly left his mark in more ways than one, Europe-wide and even into the Holy Land, uh, as we've discussed. Going back to his family life, though, and less his political life, he had one surviving child, Henry, and a, a lot of legitimate children who didn't survive into adulthood. But he also had some illegitimate children, as you talked about his dalliances. How many children do we know that he had in total? Right, now there are two legitimate children that really matter. That's Henry, born to Isabel, and then Edmund, born to Sancha. And he really did have quite a reputation as being a ladies' man. And, you know, he has a number of dalliances. And he has a quite large number of children born out of wedlock. And many die in infancy. But ultimately, it's his two surviving male legitimate children who matter. Mm. As I've said, Henry is killed in 1271, but it's 
Edmund who becomes his son and heir after this and he inherits the earldom of Cornwall he maintains the association not only with Hales but also with Tintagel and you can also see evidence of his legacy at Cleve Abbey in Somerset there's a magnificent tiled pavement there from the Abbey's 13th century refectory and English Heritage recently built a very sensitive architectural shelter to protect these and it's emblazoned some of the tiles are emblazoned with Edmund's arms had Richard died by the time that Henry had uh, died no, he doesn't live much longer than Henry, and um, I do wonder if Henry's demise hastens Richard's own death. But it's something we're going to we'll get to very very soon. Who was the most important child? Presumably, this Edmund. Yeah, it's Edmund who carries forward the legacy and the association with the sites. Edmund's lasting legacy for me, Edmund's most important legacy is the Holy Blood of Hales. In what way? Just because it leads to the augmentation of this of this family monastery and the importance of Hales as a pilgrimage destination. And Richard's role in the Barons' Wars, which um, we covered in an episode previous to this, tell us a little bit more about what he did there. Because at the start you mentioned that perhaps he might have almost sided with the Barons and against his uh, brother. Yeah, Richard blows hot and cold with the barons, but he ultimately always stays loyal to his brother when it mattered. And in 1264, when warfare finally breaks out, he comes to the king's aid, both financially and militarily. Oh, but oh dear, what happens at the Battle of Lewis on the 14th of May, 1264? It's very easy to understand why Richard acquired a reputation as a diplomat rather than a warrior. It's quite frankly a disaster and Richard ends up being besieged in a mill where he's mocked by the knights outside and he's captured. He's then imprisoned in Kenilworth Castle. It must be said in some style and comfort though an attempt to escape leads to him being placed in irons. His interests in Cornwall are granted to Guy de Montford and now he's the son of the Baron's leader Simon. And Richard only secures his freedom after the defeat of the barons at the Battle of Evesham in 1266. Now, at this battle, Simon is Simon de Montfort is brutally cut down and his body mutilated, an event which was to have very, very tragic consequences for Richard. Now, Richard's Cornish estates are restored to him, and I think his acquisition of Restormal Castle around this time is arguably a product of his need to reassert his authority in the county. How did he um, save face then, really, after being captured? It's interesting. His his title of King of the Romans has been mocked. It's like, well, what you know, you you want it to be the heir of Charlemagne, and this is what you you know the sort of position you find yourself in, but. What does he do? You know, he he is still enormously powerful. He's still got these enormous landed estates and interests and money. And you know, he. You know, I, th- I just think that you know this, the the, the acquisition of Restormal, and he goes to Germany again to try and reassert his claim to the to to the to to, to the uh, uh, the imperial dignity. You know, he's still a major major force to be reckoned with. Towards the end of his life, I, I gather he suffered some ill health. What happened there? Yeah, I mean, he's you know he's in his fifties, isn't he? When all this is happening during the Barons' War, and he does suffer 
quite ill you know ill health in later life and he's dealt an enormous blow in 1271 when his eldest son and his then heir Henry Valmain or Germany is murdered in Viterbo Cathedral Italy he's horribly cut down by Guy and Simon de Montfort and they're the sons of, of uh, Simon the Elder and it's in in revenge for the, their father's death at the Battle of Evesham and it is an act of the most appalling sacrilege isn't it cutting down somebody in a cathedral now Henry's entrails are buried in Viterbo his heart is taken to Westminster Abbey to be buried and his bones are buried before the high altar at Hales Richard suffers a debilitating stroke in December 1271 and he dies at Berkhamsted Castle on the 2nd of April 1272. His heart is removed and buried at the Franciscan Church in Oxford. It's said beneath a noble pyramid, but his body is taken to Hales where it's interred next to Sancha. Just going back quickly to that um, revenge murder of his son, how would you sort of uh, yeah, it's, it's like it? A ma- it is like a mafia hit, isn't it? Mm. You know, and medieval history is littered with events like this. You know, uh, you know, I've talked about Richard's glamour and the veneer that these great nobles have of culture and you know chivalric conduct, but at the end of the day. They use violence to assert their power. They don't think twice about it. Now, you know, Richard's skilled. He uses his diplomatic skills when he can. But it is just an indication of just how violent the Middle Ages can be. Now, this isn't kind of some Game of Thrones scenario where it's just glossed over. The use of violence in certain circumstances was thought to be, yeah, it's commonplace, but it took place within a very, very strong moral framework. And... The cutting down of Henry at prayer in a cathedral was an act of the most appalling sacrilege. And Guy and Simon, well, unless they did incredible penances for what they had done, were going to go to hell. How would you characterise Richard's life then? We we talk about um, him having a lot of power, influence, European titles, uh, aspirations to the Holy Roman Emperorship. Uh, if that's a word. How do you sum it up? I just think his life was quite extraordinary. And I just think it shows how dynamic, creative and truly international the Middle Ages were. I mean, Richard's career was played out on the medieval world stage. And in it, you've got everything. You've got high politics, you've got dynastic rivalry, domestic quarrels worthy of a soap opera but also creativity and intense faith and also, I think, a very, very strong human dimension of grief and loss. Now, one aspect I haven't had much of a chance to talk about is Richard's association with England's Jewish community. Now, it's thanks to Richard's influence that there was a Jewish community in Berkhamsted close to his castle in the 13th century. And he came to the protection of a Jew in Berkhamsted, who was accused of sacrilege, and also to the Jews in Lincoln on one occasion. Now, the Jews were doubtless useful to him for his financial dealings and his wealth. But, you know, his protection was very important as well. England's Jewish community was deeply vulnerable. And and that's shown by the appalling massacre of York's Jews at Clifford's Tower in 1190. And 20 years after Richard's death, the Jews are expelled from England, only to return in the 17th century. Hmm. 
But you know the the international aspect of Richard, I find fascinating is you know his attempt to become emperor i mean i've been to arkin a few times and each time i've gone into the cathedral and thought of him being crowned there and in the treasury well actually seeing his scepter seeing that chest emblazoned with his coats of arms and sanchez it, it sent a shiver down my spine to be honest Hmm. He left a mark in that place, obviously. What mark did he leave on English history and English heritage sites? Just think of it. Six sites with an association with Richard. It really does show his significance and reach. And I think these sites speak to every aspect of his extraordinary life. Well, think of it. Power and display. There's Launceston and Restormal. A feudal seat and palace, you've got Berkhamsted. Romance and chivalry and Arthurian romance and legends, you just can't beat Tintagel. You can't beat Tintagel in so many ways. The perils of medieval nobility, well, there's Kenilworth, site of his imprisonment, and it shows how even the mightiest, the king of the Romans, can suffer humiliation and hails for medieval piety in his ultimate resting place. You know, just think of it, six sites. And, you know, I mean, I'm especially associated with Hales Abbey. I've, you know, I worked on the new interpretation there and wrote the guidebook. And to think that Hales and, you know, English heritage is custodian of the resting place of the bones of the King of the Romans. And, you know, and I was, and I was preparing for this podcast. I really did strike me yet again just how lucky I am to have this job. Absolutely. And I think what we've also done today is that we've really explained the life and times of a man who probably gets a little bit forgotten by history, but we've proved today that there's plenty to say about Richard Earl of Cornwall. There really, really is. Boy, does he deserve to be better known. What an absolutely extraordinary life. And his achievements, I wonder if it's because so many of them are diplomatic that, you know, he doesn't conform in some ways to a popular ideal of a, of a medieval prince and king of like killing people on the battlefield, securing great military victories. But I think that makes him all the more interesting. And King of the Romans, he has a legacy which deserves to be known and to be honoured. <laughs> You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we're casting off for adventure with the pirates of the English Channel. We have pirates coming from the Rhineland in the late Roman period, Saxon pirates and raiders in the early medieval period, and of course, Vikings. They're not just raiders of coastal settlements, they're also pirates. Thanks for listening. See you next time.